Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Abracadaver. This week's case is going to be about William Leslie Arnold. William Leslie Arnold, known as Leslie, was born on August 28, 1942 in Omaha, Nebraska, to Bill Arnold and his wife Opal. Leslie's one and only sibling was his brother Jim, who was three years younger. Leslie's father, Bill, owned a company that sold household goods door-to-door, and his wife, Opal, was a stay-at-home mom. Leslie was described as having a fiery temper. He was constantly getting into trouble in elementary school until he eventually learned to control it in class. By his junior year of high school, he was a B student and was well-liked by his teachers. He joined his school's baseball, track, and wrestling teams, but his passion was music. Leslie played the tenor saxophone in his school's marching band. Leslie's anger was on a short fuse at home. He had smashed his model airplanes because they weren't coming together right, but a lot of Leslie's anger was directed toward his mother. Leslie stated to the psychiatrist while he was in prison that his mother Opal was very controlling. She had made Leslie cut the grass three times until it was even enough for her. It would later be known from a family member that Opal had been hospitalized twice for mental health issues. Leslie and his mother Opal would fight over the use of family cars and Leslie's new girlfriend, Crystal. Opal made it clear she didn't approve of her by calling Crystal's family trash. On Saturday morning, September 27, 1958, Leslie made plans later that night to take Crystal on a date to a drive-in movie with a brand new Mercury. Around 11 o'clock, Leslie wanted privacy while he was on the phone with Crystal, so he stretched the phone cord to his room and closed his bedroom door. He was sitting on the bottom of the stairs when Opal opened the door and told him anything you say behind closed doors isn't worth saying, and then proceeded to tell him Crystal was no good. Leslie defends Crystal, and this starts up another fight. She then tells him he wasn't going to the drive-in anymore, causing Leslie to punch a hole in the wall. Opal had had enough and sent him to his room. He sat in there thinking of ways to get his mother to reconsider letting him go. Leslie finally went downstairs to talk to his mother, and another fight erupted. Opal this time told Leslie to go outside and cool off. Leslie walked around for a while before eventually going up to his room. This is when dark thoughts came into his head. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, Leslie entered his parents' closet and grabbed his father's twenty-two caliber Remington rifle. He walked downstairs into the dining room with the gun in hand while his mother was in the kitchen. When Opal saw him, she laughed and said, quote, What are you going to do, shoot me? End quote. This is when Leslie pulled the trigger. Opal fell to the floor screaming in agony. Leslie stood over her and fired five more rounds at his mother's chest. Not long after, his father Bill came home from grocery shopping to see his wife dead on the floor and his 16-year-old son holding the gun. Bill, in a rage, charged at his son and tried to punch him ending with Leslie firing six rounds at his father. Leslie realized what he had just done. He dropped the gun and ran into the living room and curled up on the couch and cried. A half an hour later, he composed himself. Leslie drug his parents' bodies down to the basement and then put the dining room rug in the garage. He called a family friend named Rose Grossman, asking if she could watch his 13-year-old brother, Jim. He made up an elaborate story that his grandparents were on a trip to California and Leslie's grandfather was senile, got off the train in Wyoming, and got lost. So Leslie's parents left to help find him. Once Jim arrived home from ushering, Leslie dropped him off at Grossman's house. Then he cleaned himself up and drove his parents' car to pick Crystal up for their date. 
Later that night, when he came home, Leslie attempted to sleep outside in the car, but it was too cold. So he went upstairs to his room and turned up the radio. The next day after church, Leslie asked to borrow a shovel from the neighbor and then spent the rest of the day with Crystal. He didn't return until nightfall. Leslie spent the next couple hours digging a hole under a lilac bush in the corner of his backyard. Once the hole was deep enough, he went downstairs to the basement and used his father's belt to get his body up on up the basement stairs, outside and into the hole. He then did the same to his mother and then covered up the hole. He disposed of the rug by dumping it over a bridge into Big Piplin Creek. At around midnight, Leslie went to Grossman's house because he didn't want to be alone. As he was entering the house, she took notice of the broken blisters on both of Leslie's hands. On Monday, September 29th, he went to his father's work and opened it for business. He then told one of his father's assistants the elaborate story of his father's absence and then asked if he could take over the store before Leslie left for school. After five days, Jim and Leslie were back at home. On October 5th, Leslie's lies finally caught up to him. His grandparents, the same grandfather who got lost on his trip to California, came by the Arnold's home. They were concerned that they hadn't heard from Bill or Opal in a while. The following day, Leslie's grandmother called Grossman to find out if the Arnold's left a note behind before they left. Grossman asked about Leslie's missing grandfather, and Leslie's grandmother was obviously very confused and had no idea what she was talking about. Rose Grossman realized things were adding up, so she started digging. She found out there was no train the time Opal and Bill supposedly left. She also found out from neighbors about the numerous fights Leslie and Opal would have. On the morning of October 10th, Grossman contacted the police to tell them about her suspicions. That night, while Leslie was out with Crystal to watch a football game, his great-uncle filed a missing persons report for Opal and Bill. His great-uncle, just like Grossman, had told the police their suspicions about Leslie being the last person to see Opal and Bill alive. On Saturday morning, two detectives picked Leslie up and brought him to the station to question him. Leslie confessed to everything. An officer then asked him if he was willing to, to take them to where he buried his parents, and he agreed. Leslie took him to the lilac bush where they started digging, and not long after, they unearthed a hand. That Monday, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. On June 2, 1959, Leslie went to trial and pled guilty for two second-degree murder charges. A week later, he was driven to the Nebraska State Penitentiary. While in prison, Leslie completed high school and became a tutor. He was a model prisoner and had several jobs around the prison, even playing the sax in the prison band. Crystal's parents would visit Leslie in prison after they became his legal guardians, along with Jim Child, his childhood friend, and a nun. In early 1965, Leslie was given more privileges and freedoms and lived in a special dorm located outside the main prison wall. Leslie, who was now 24, wanted out of prison. A fellow inmate knew a man named Jim Harding who was in prison after killing someone during an armed robbery, um, and he also wanted to escape prison. He introduced Leslie and Jim together, and the two men began to plot their escape. An unknown inmate who would be out on parole in May agreed to help them escape. In the early morning hours, Jim Harding made it a routine to walk around the prison near the fence. On July 5th, Jim and Leslie sighed and message in the newspaper from the ex-con that the plan was in motion. Jim walked around the prison fence as an ex-inmate drove by, throwing a cardboard tube over the fence. 
Jim casually walked over, picked it up, and concealed it. Inside the tube was two hacksaw blades and two rubber masks. Leslie and Jim went into the small music room in the prison during dinner and used the hacksaw on the big metal bars. In a couple days, the men had sawn off the bars and then used wads of gum to keep the bars in place. On July 14th at 10 p.m., both Leslie and Jim quickly stuffed blankets under the bedding and used the rubber masks as their heads to not raise suspicion. The two men then went downstairs into the music room, removed the bars they sawed off, and climbed through. They ran 30 feet to the fence and climbed over. Once they were both on the other side, they ran 150 plus yards to where the ex-con was waiting to pick them up to take them to Omaha. Once in Omaha, Leslie called Jim Child and told him that he needed his help, that he and Jim had escaped prison. Jim picked them up without hesitation and took them to the Greyhound station in Omaha for the 3 a.m. departure. He brought Leslie and Jim several tickets and gave them all the money he had on him, which was about $40. They both boarded the bus without incident. At 7 in the morning, the prison guards were shocked to find that they were missing two inmates. The two inmates were Jim and Leslie, so they sent out a team to search for them, but the two men were already on their way to Chicago. They reached Chicago around noon, and by the next morning, the two men their separate ways. The police had an obstacle in their way because they didn't have an updated picture of Leslie. The only picture was when he was first arrested at 16 years old. This is the reason why prisoners now have updated pictures of the prisoners every the FBI had then joined in on the search. Two weeks after, the men escaped the FBI, searched through the visitor logs, and saw that Jim Child had visited Leslie in prison. They went to question him about Leslie's whereabouts, and he told them nothing. In May 1968, Jim Harding happened to be in L.A. during a manhunt for James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King. When Jim Harding walked into a bar, a woman mistook him for James Earl Ray. When the police got Harding, they found out even though he had a resemblance to him, he wasn't James, and he was, but he was a wanted fugitive. He was sent back to Nebraska Penitentiary and spent eight more years in prison before he was released on parole. Leslie Arnold has never been found and is thought to have to maybe travel to Brazil. If he is alive today, he will be 79 this year. The most recent update on this case is in 2017. A Brazilian immigration card was found registered to William Leslie Arnold. He registered for it in December of 1968. It is unknown if Leslie lived in Brazil under a false name or if he kept his name and was able to live his life under the radar. Leslie at the time of his disappearance was five foot nine, weighing 155 pounds. He has brown hair and brown eyes. He has a small scar on the center of his forehead a vaccination scar on his right upper arm, and mole-slash-scars on his right cheek. And there you have the facts. I will talk to you guys next time.